Hello, and welcome to Historical Hysteria. I, as always, am your host, Nicholas Ward, and today I will be taking you through the six most incredible last stands in history. This episode, as always, is brought to you by your public libraries. You've got to use them or you're going to lose them. Did you know that throughout history most people have died? In fact, more than half of all people alive right now will die at some point in their lives. That's a guarantee. Through the millions of deaths, however, there are some so bold, so epic, that they make everyone else ashamed to be alive. Today, I am going to explore some incredible stories in history that don't make it into Anglophone textbooks. I do have to start this episode with a slight disclaimer. Some of these stories are from legendary periods in history where fact and fiction have blurred together, leaving stories that, while generally true, have had the gaps filled in with pure legend, making separating the legend from the truth difficult, but I will do my best to address this. So, without further ado, let me introduce you to the six most incredible last stands in history. Number six, the tale of Yoshitsune and Benkei. Yoshitsune's company was a motley group of 20 rebels who, having narrowly escaped an army of assassins, spent four years moving around feudal Japan while relentlessly pursued by a dark lord and his armies. After four years, they met their end in a battle that has gone down as probably the most famous fight in Japanese history. During their four years in exile, the companions fell one by one. Betrayed and led into an inescapable valley, the twenty companions were cornered by two hundred warrior monks. Sato Tadanobu led the warrior monks away from the company, killing two in single combat after falling off a cliff. He then, having fallen off a cliff, escaped and set their monastery on fire, before escaping to Kyoto, where he was caught in bed with a lord's wife and slain. His was the first death and the first of the last stands of the companions of Yoshitsune. The group, thinking themselves safe, rested in a small fort by the Koromo River when they were cornered by 500 mounted samurai. 500 before and a raging river behind, they were trapped. Yoshitsune, to maintain his honour, needed to commit seppuku, and surviving companions tried to buy him time. The 500 let fly their arrows, and most of Yoshitsune's companies fell, the archers tumbling off the roofs. As the 500 samurai rushed in, three survivors rushed out of the buildings. One, a former bandit, Issei Saburu, fell and slew, met and slew nine samurai. Cut up and bleeding heavily, he fought till he could move no more and fell dead. Washino, a common hunter, surviving the initial barrage, pelted the attackers with arrows, slaying half a dozen, before an arrow pierced his throat and he fell from the roof with the others. The only one left standing was Benkei, a warrior monk and Yoshitsune's most loyal follower. Benkei was said to be seven feet tall, with flaming red hair. He fought with a naganata, a Japanese polearm, because swords were said to be too small for his hands. Benkei's friends dead and dying around him, he ran inside to say his last words to his friend and master. Emerging from the fort, Naganata in hand, Katana in the other, none were left to defend but Benkei. With a roar, Benkei charged the cavalry and fell to the ground, slashing open the stomachs of the horses. Many fell before his blade and the cavalry fell back. 
Near 500 samurai stood before Benkei, a handful of samurai on foot, charged the giant and were slain. Benkei stood at the entrance of the fort, unmoving, and when ordered to attack again, the remaining samurai refused, instead letting loose a volley of arrows and watching unbelievably as Benkei stood unflinchingly as the arrows pierced his armour. After multiple volleys, one mounted samurai galloped past the giant. He fell in the dust, dead. Rigor mortis had set in. Benkei had been killed in the initial volley, and so died the last of Yoshitsune's company. Yoshitsune succeeded in committing seppuku, and the story of Benkei and Yoshitsune became legend. Now, unsurprisingly, a lot of that story is apocryphal. Yoshitsune and Benkei and most of their companions were, in fact, real people in real Japanese historical records who did have to flee after falling out of favour with the new emperor, Yoshitsune's half-brother, and did have a last stand at a fort on a river surrounded by several hundred opponents. And even the incredible last stand of Benkei was related by several of the samurai who were there. However, this all occurred during the 12th century, a period of extreme turmoil in Japan. Records from this period aren't always reliable, and many of the details would undergo retellings over the centuries and make the story more and more incredible. However, even the base details of this story are amazing, and this is just the surface. A later Japanese legend was that Yoshitsune survived, went to Mongolia, and became Genghis Khan, but that is a story for another time. Which brings us to number five, the Akro Roshi, the 47 Ronin. Yes, we are staying in Japan. Now, you might ask, everyone knows the 47 Ronin now. It's that horrible movie starring Keanu Reeves with the, with the dragon. I thought this was about unknown stories. Well, believe it or not, the 47 Ronin bears no resemblance to the Hollywood fantasy film where the big bad guy is a dragon because it's even more insane. One snowy January night in the 18th century, 47 ronin samurai met outside a large fortified mansion with one goal, to kill Kira Yoshihasa, a shogunate official who had killed their master and dishonoured them. The 47 were retainers of Asano, a samurai lord who two years earlier had been ordered to commit suicide after striking the corrupt official Kira. Asano's household was disbanded, his lands divided, and his samurai became ronin forced to take common jobs as farmers and labourers. 47 waited and plotted revenge for two years, and on the 30th of January 1703, stormed Kira's compounds, archers scaling the roof, while the rest rushed the doors. The ronin were stopped by ten of Kira's high-trained retainers. Kira's men forced them into the courtyard. As the fight raged on, men from the household ran for help, but were picked off by the archers. The battle stalled, until the second group poured over the rear gate, routing the rest of the guards. The ronin pulled Kira into the courtyard, beheaded him, and took his head to the grave of Asano. By killing Kira, their lives were automatically forfeit, and two months later, 46 of the 47 committed suicide as a final act of defiance against the shogun. The insane thing about the 47 ronin is that that story is 100% true. Now, since the 18th century, the story has been told and retold a hundred times, and has become more fantastical with each retelling. Since the Meiji Restoration, that story has been a tale of the corruption of the shogunate, the selflessness of the samurai, and the Bushido code. However, the story has a much simpler and more boring explanation. The 47 weren't Asano's only samurai. And by killing Kira and then themselves, they helped guarantee the protection and reinstatement of the rest of the samurai and their families. 
still an incredible story. However, really makes you wonder how much cocaine the producers of 47 Ronin had to be on to hear that story and say out loud, okay, but like, what if we added a dragon? Which brings us to number four, Horatius Cocklus. Now, I'm going to start this story with another disclaimer, because unfortunately, almost everything I'm about to say is unconfirmed. 509 BC, the first year of the Roman Republic. Its armies routed. All that stood between the Republic and ruin was a single wooden bridge and the one-eyed Horatius Cocklus. The Republic placed the last of its armies in front of the bridge to the city, but they were crushed by an Etruscan army. The fleeing soldiers blocked the bridge and the Etruscans fell upon them, massacring them. Through the carnage, Horatius and two companions pushed forward and attacked the Etruscans with such ferocity that they were forced back as the dead choked the bridge. Horatius dashed forward and demanded single combat from the Etruscans while quietly ordering his soldiers to destroy the bridge. The dead were piled so high that Horatius found cover behind them as the Etruscans hurled javelins at him, and as they charged, he stepped forward and called out, demanding single combat again. The Etruscans stopped, unsure whether to attack. Then, with a roar, the vanguard threw their javelins, which Horatius caught on his shield and charged. The dead covering the bridge prevented the Etruscans attacking en masse. Horatio was severely injured, bleeding from a large gash in his leg. It seemed the end. When suddenly the bridge crashed behind him, he had stalled them just long enough for his men to collapse it. He turned, saluted Rome, and leapt into the river in full armour, plunging below the surface. Now, there are two accounts from Roman history as to his fate. Livy, the ancient Roman historian, says Horatius struggled to the other side and was greeted as a hero but disabled from his injuries, while others say that he drowned or was slain by an errant javelin thrown after him. Unfortunately, as amazing as this story is, the reality of it is entirely uncertain. Ancient Rome had a gate named after Horatio, and one of the most famous epic poems of all time, Horatius at the Bridge, is about this. Unfortunately, early Rome is so shrouded in myth, we have no idea what actually happened. An Etruscan army did attack Rome around this time, and the Romans did honour not somebody named Horatius as the saviour of Rome. However, Almost all of our knowledge about Horatius comes from a poem written several centuries after this time. Great story though. But let's move on to a story that is not only true, but completely verifiable. Number three, the Battle of Cameron. At 8am on the 30th of April 1863, 62 French foreign legionnaires stationed in Mexico sat in the open breakfasting when 650 Mexican cavalry rode into view. The legionaries leapt to their feet, knocking over their coffee pots, and narrowly repelled the attack. As they hastily retreated to a nearby hacienda, repelling a second attack by the cavalry, the legionnaires barricaded themselves in the hacienda in time to see a further 3,000 Mexican soldiers surround them. The Mexicans offered them chance to surrender. Outnumbered 50 to 1, the 62 legionaries refused. For six hours, the legionaries fought off wave after wave of attack till only 20 remained. Offered a chance once again to surrender, they again refused. The next wave of attack breached the walls, running low on ammunition. 
The last, the remaining 20 barricaded themselves in a room, somehow holding out for another four hours till they were completely out of ammunition. The Mexicans broke into the room. The legionaries fought back with nothing but bayonets, driving the Mexicans back into the courtyard. The attack halted, and the Mexican commander called out, offering the five remaining legionaries one more chance to surrender. The Mexicans waited. When suddenly the five emerged from the room, bayonets fixed and charged the thousands of waiting Mexicans. Two were shot dead immediately. The other three were captured. The siege lasted 10 hours, and the Mexicans suffered 500 casualties. Firstly, how is this not a Hollywood movie yet? It's like the Alamo times 10. But secondly, these details are completely and verifiably true. Both the Mexican forces and the three surviving legionaries confirmed numbers, times, and events. The Mexicans were so impressed by the legionaries' bravery, they returned them to France. And today, the Foreign Legion honours this battle as its finest hour, still parading the wooden arm of the commander through the streets of Paris every year. Because did I forget to mention that the commander had a wooden arm this whole time? How could any last stand story top that? Well, let me introduce you to the Battle of Saragahi. Dawn, September 12th. 1897, 21 Sikh infantry from the British Indian Army are performing routine tasks at their small hilltop fort, when suddenly 10,000 armed Afghan Pashtuns surround them and attack. The Sikhs outnumbered 500 to 1. The Sikhs, armed with outdated British weaponry and outnumbered 500 to 1, repel the first attack. Then the second then the third, then they continue to repel attacks for the next six hours before the walls are finally overrun and the gate breached. The Sikhs rush the gap, futilely attempting to block the breach. Desperately, the commander, Ishar Singh, ordered his men to seal themselves inside the barracks, throwing himself upon the enemy to buy them time. The commander fell and the barracks did not hold long. The Pashtuns forced their way inside. As they breached the building, a sepoy lying injured shot four before perishing with all hands. Finally, all who remained was a single signal officer, Gurmuk Singh, who had communicated the details in real time via a helioscope, a sort of flashlight with a shutter, to a nearby British garrison also besieged. Singh was sealed in his signalling tower and surrounded by thousands of enemies, with only himself left he picked up his rifle and began to fire at the massed Pashtuns, who, unable to kill him, set fire to the tower. As he burned, he shot no less than 20 Pashtuns, while reportedly yelling a Sikh battle cry. The Pashtuns later admitted to suffering 160 casualties, while a British body count put the number at 600. The battle is sometimes referred to as the Sikh or Indian Thermopylae. Despite how unbelievable this story is, it has largely left the popular consciousness, both in India and Britain. It was not until 2001 that the British began talking about officially honouring the battle. I personally think it has fallen victim to just being inconvenient to modern national narratives. Today, 
Many are trying to forget colonialism, both in Britain and India, leaving the 21 Sikhs in a political no-man's land where no one quite wants to pick up the story because it doesn't neatly fit into any of the current national myths. The story is still celebrated by Sikhs worldwide, and the Sikh Regiment of the Indian Army celebrates the Battle of Saragahi Day every year on the 12th of September. And starting around the late 1990s, there are those in India who are pushing for the Battle of Saragahi to be more widely taught in schools and to be honoured as an example of Indian heroism. Which leads me to the ultimate national myth, a man who is worshipped by a whole country and should by all rights be world famous. I am of course talking about Skanderbeg. Skanderbeg was an Albanian nobleman taken captive as a young boy by the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century. He distinguished himself in Ottoman military service and in 1443 defected from an Ottoman force with 300 soldiers and raised a rebellion in Albania. Between 1443 and 1468, Skanderbeg won nearly every major battle fought against the Ottomans. In 1450, at the head of an army of just 10,000, he was cornered by 100,000 Ottomans. Virtually every city and major power in Albania deserted his cause because what kind of chance do you have against those odds? He routed the entire enemy army overnight. Through his rule, he rarely commanded more than 15,000 soldiers, yet for near three decades, he evaded certain defeat. Every battle he fought was a desperate last stand, and every time the Albanian nobility would balk and start making peace deals with the Ottomans. But every last stand was thwarted. Every defeat turned to a victory, always outnumbered, but never outthought. In 1451, a nobleman's revolt deprived him of all but one city. The entirety of his kingdom was swept up by Ottoman gold. By 1452, he had regained all his lands and defeated another Ottoman army, double his army's size. During his reign, he was also betrayed by numerous relatives, imprisoning one uncle and beheading one nephew. Skanderbeg led a desperate last stand of just 300 men before leading a desperate last stand with just 10,000 men before leading a desperate last stand with just one city. Yet on his deathbed, all of Albania was still fighting a desperate last stand against what was the most powerful empire in Europe, if not the world. Though vastly outnumbered and outgunned at the end of his life, Albania was still fiercely independent. But with his death, so died independent Albania. The country briefly became part of Venice before falling to the Ottomans. And with that incredible three-decade last stand, I will finish this episode. In the future, I hope to do an individual episode or series of episodes on every single one of these stories, but for the time being, I hope they have whetted your appetite for the incredible non-English stories that are out there just waiting to be found. If you liked or hated this episode, you can send feedback to historicalhysteria at gmail.com and check out the socials r slash historicalhysteria on Reddit and at Manic History on Twitter. Before I go, I will leave you with this quick factoid. Wedding rings, now a staple on both men and women's hands, have only been common in the West on men's fingers since the 1940s. That's all we have time for today. I hope you have a good day wherever you are, and goodbye.